Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's one minute past nine, coming up to two minutes past nine, you're tuned to Radio Marinara. In fact, you're not. You're tuned to Triple R. You might be listening via rrr.org.au, maybe via conventional 102.7. I don't know what conventional is anymore. Anyway, this is Radio <laughs> Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills. How are you, Cade? I'm exceptionally well this morning, Bron. It's a bit fresh out there, but we've got some sunshine coming our way. It's brisk. It is, but um, you know, we have a correspondent in Antarctica that makes me feel warm every time <laughs> I come in and hear from Cliff. Hey, Cliff. we got your weather report. We're going to mention that shortly. Um, our appropriate thanks to Tim very much for Vital Bits first and to Andrew for Soulful Bits as always. Yeah, well, Tim actually played a set there where I actually thought my uncle had broken into the studio and taken over the airwaves because it was a whole lot of vinyl that I got lent as a kid, um, starting with like the Eric Burden in Monterey and it was stuff that he was into and it was just a great throwback to you know being a kid and I think Tim sort of brings out those memories of um, things that you'd forgotten about and music that you got to go and dig out and listen to again. So thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Monterey set. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? Oh, it was we brilliant. might as well just go home. All right, we're done. <laughs> I'll leave it to Tim for another hour. He's done it before. So, uh, yeah, he has actually not that long ago either. So thank you, Tim. And, yes, you can catch Tim next weekend, Saturday at 6 a.m. for three hours of Vital Bits Power and then again on Sunday. Who wouldn't want to do that? I do. I heard the full three hours this morning. I was up nice and early. Oh, were you? Well, up before six o'clock, yes, oh, wow. <laughs> wrestling with a three-year-old. Oh, fun, yeah. fun. Okay, today's program. We are, um, I've said uh, that we're getting the bucket and spade and heading down to the beach. We're firstly catching up with Neil Blake, our baykeeper. He's been looking at the known habitats of thin-ribbed cockles also known as southern cockles, I believe, um, after lots and lots of them um, were suddenly washed up by last week's storm events. And Neil's talking about his observations and some potential connection to the recent increase in sightings of the northern Pacific sea stars on the eastern side of the bay. Yeah, well, the shellfish don't really stand a chance when they're around in large numbers. That's what they like to eat. Yes. So, yeah, is, there's is that there potential. a connection there? Well, I'm guessing Neil's going to tell us a story about it. Yeah. Uh, then uh, we're going to speak with Jackie Younger, speaking of sea stars, um, about the sea stars because she's been involved in some big community-based collection efforts. Um, but uh, also uh, an update on the spider crabs or lack thereof, apparently. Yeah, it's becoming an interesting one. I'll, I want to ask her whether it's not that they're not there, just people aren't saying where they are. Mm. Um, people are sort of keeping a lid on it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, if they were inshore and around the piers... It's we'd know about we'd it. We'd know about it. Yeah. So that's the big question is where are they? So are they there? We'll find out. Are they out of sight, out yeah. of mind, but not by all? Anyway. They, yeah, maybe they read the signs that we put up saying stay away from the piers. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And then we have a, a very special guest uh, who you've organised. Yeah, we're going to be talking commercial diving with John O'Rudge from um, Kinner Diving. Uh, he's someone who has spent a huge amount of time underwater, particularly in Victoria, and I thought it'd be good to get a bit of perspective from um, some different wet and salty people, and in particular talking about some work he's been doing recently at Beware Reef in East Gippsland, um, culling sea urchins. And 
plenty of them, so we'll actually sort of get a bit of a catch-up as to what's been going on there and maybe talk about what life is like as a commercial diver. It's an interesting one, the sea urchin coal. It's certainly sparked a lot of conversation and debate and some, you know, it's polarised some discussion on this, I think. It has, yeah. And it'll be, it's been something we've discussed quite a bit. We've had Paul Carnell on talking about it. We've also had sort of some local people talking about this sort of overabundance of a native species and the impact of it. And so this is where parks are actually taking a proactive sort of management stance with this and doing something about it. And yeah, it'd be interesting to get his perspective on it, given that he's been diving these areas for a long period of time. That's right. And he would have seen the consequence of having having uh, the urchins get out of control in terms of their numbers. Yeah. Um, we are then going to go from urchins to whales. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about scale. Um, uh, we, we needed to throw in a little bit of charismatic megafauna into today's program and it's been quite some time since we caught up with Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia and Dolphin Research Institute. He's going to be talking about a bunch of things, current whale migrations, where are they at at the moment, recent sightings. There's been. Did you see that photo of the whale inshore near Warrnambool? I didn't see that one. Oh. There's been a lot floating around. It's been busy. There's one that's been, um, I don't know whether it's been a little bit, um, you know, enhanced. <laughs> I don't think it has been, but incredible, really close. Um, and Warrnambool is a classic place to go whale watching as well. And some papers that Dave has co-authored, including uh, a really interesting examination of bubble net feeding. This one actually got a bit of mainstream attention recently so bubble net feeding what is that and some observations of killer whales from antarctica in australia oh fantastic so we'll, we'll link it back we'll go full circle on antarctica have we got enough time for all this Brian? we probably should get into it yeah <laughs> let's um let's have a little look at today's weather for melbourne and surrounds and then i have this week's antarctica weather report yeah so at the moment it's six degrees and apparently it feels like four um, my toes can tell you that because i'm not wearing any shoes but it is going to get better today um, up to 15 degrees the rest of the week is pretty much around the same 15 16 with sort of showers appearing later in the week if you're out on the water or you're wanting to get out on the water there's a high tide at the heads was 6 30 this morning with the low tide at around 12 o'clock or 11 54 there's a bit of swell around three or four foot the wind sort of southeast um, so it's quite light but there's a bit of sort of um, wonk on it but that means that pretty much everywhere is going to have a wave and I'm sure there's a few people that have been in lockdown that are probably heading there regardless of what conditions are like so get amongst it. Good one. Weather report from Antarctica. Thank you, Cliff Davis, Triple R's most remote subscriber. Sends us a message every Sunday. Thank you, Cliff. Greetings, Radio Marinara team. Your taxes are being well spent down here. Midwinter tomorrow. Interesting concept of midwinter. We'll have to ask Cliff about that because, of course, we're only 20 days into June. Technically, we're not even a third of the way through winter here. <clears throat> so... Yep, interesting. And a public holiday for them down in uh, at uh, at where? <laughs> what do they do on a public holiday? Is <laughs> what I want to know. Yeah. And then he says, weather wasn't looking too good for a swim. We did it on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> no wind and minus seven degrees. And no, I didn't swim. He's done that once before. Um, which uh, and he sent us some gold photos. So we'll put some photos on our Facebook page of people swimming. Now that's real icebreakers, isn't near it? Casey Station. Um, and the weather report itself. Oh, I don't think I've got it. Cold. Oh, minus <laughs> really cold. I think he said, didn't he? Minus seven. Yep. Okay, and no wind. Yep. A couple of 
news items. Yeah, a couple of announcements. So the Australian Marine Science Association's 2021 conference kicks off on Monday the 28th of June and runs through to Thursday the 1st of July. Um, if you're if you are an AMSA Victoria member, keep an eye on your inboxes. We're hoping to have a social event. You know, people getting together and talking um, on the Thursday night, which is the end of the conference. So it's open to people that are registered for the conference, but also just members in general as an opportunity to catch up. This year, the conference theme is marine science in the Anthropocene. And so the Anthropocene is the period of time where human activities have basically impacted upon the environment, um, which constitutes constituting distinct geological change. So there's you can register for the full conference or a day. And then this year, they're actually offering a fantastic opportunity because it's all virtual and online, is you can just register for the plenary sessions. And so if you're not familiar with what a plenary session is, it's basically... The mo- some of the most inspiring talks you see for a conference. So these are people that are well established in their field presenting not only sort of re- research that they've done but the direction where they're looking to in, in the future. So there's four fantastic speakers that you're able to hear. So for information on that, you can basically jump online or type in Australian Marine Science Association Conference 2021 and find out some more there and register. Cool. We also have Coast Care Grants closing up on Wednesday the 23rd of June. Um, you should be well underway with those but just a reminder to get them out and then this is more of a watch your space given sort of we've had some conversations around this on marinara that is that 21 sites off the coast of victoria and western australia have been opened up for petroleum exploration and so the headline coming out was they're you know just a few k's away from the 12 apostles mm. but there's also a lot of sort of other locations and i mean this is happening at a time when we're trying to move away from fossil fuels to curb greenhouse gas emissions so we're just putting it there Nothing is happening at the moment, but it's just gone out. So just putting it on the to watch list. And I imagine this will be something we'll be following up later discussing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we can say that one with certainty. This is Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Cade, we've just had a response from Cliff. We found out more about winter. Yeah, we did. So midwinter has been a celebration at all stations, countries down here. Uh, and it's related to the shortest day of the year, so winter solstice, which is today or tomorrow, depending on which side of the fence you sit. So instead of using your calendar, they use the environment That's to <laughs> tell them <laughs> what the weather's like. <laughs> what a novel idea. You have, I'm having a der moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's an annual celebration held across Antarctica on the day of the southern winter solstice, June 20 or 21. Thanks, Cliff. Great that they celebrate it with a swim too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put that photo up on our Facebook page. Wait till you see it. I wonder if they wear thermal budgie smugglers. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. I'll tell you who else is impressive is Neil Blake. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Bron. Great. Good morning, Neil. Great to have you with us. Yes, uh, sun is shining out there too. So speaking of Antarctica, it's not quite the same here at the moment. Now, we, we commented um, last week or the week before that Cliff must laugh at us talking about the cold thing. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should be out in your shorts and T-shirts. Yeah. Um, now, thin rib cockles, let's start with a description. What is a thin rib cockle? Well, it's a bivalve uh, shell, Bron. Uh, there's sort of a kind of roundish to look at. Um, they grow up to about 40 millimetres, which is uh, about a quarter of the size of a 50 cent piece again. Uh, and they have very fine uh, 
ridges radiating from the from the hinge of the bivalve, uh, and they they often have a uh, a pinkish tinge to them. Uh, I, I called them sunset sunset shells uh, because it, when they're in fresh condition, they do have a, a nice yellowy pinkish sort of uh, colouring to them. They're very gentle, and they're reasonably common, aren't they? When you you can see them. I think when people would see a photo of it, I'll try and um, if you've got a photo one of one Neil, send one through, and I'll put it on our Facebook page. Age, but yeah, it's, okay. it's your standard shell because, of course, when you see them on the beach, they're not usually together. You don't get both shells hinged together. It's one of the shells after the animals died. Yeah, so, that's it. Yeah. Unless they've been uh, freshly killed, and that's that's the key in this particular story. Yeah. Uh, just on, in terms of their, how common they are, um, they were the third most common shell that I recorded in 10 years of uh, shell surveys around the bay. Yeah. Uh, they're definitely... Uh, quite widespread, uh, about they live in sandy sediments. I think if people would see them, um, and when we'll put it on our Facebook page, as I said, you know, the response will be, oh, yeah, that shell. People will know what we're talking yeah, about. So what's happened? Well, uh, what sort of come to a head, I suppose, the day after the, the big storm, um, I got a text in the morning uh, from Judy Muir uh, so, with some photos telling me that there were thin rib cockles uh, around about the size of a 10 cent piece or less uh, that were on the beach cast up uh, between Tootcrook and Blair Gowrie. Uh, so that was quite uh, striking. And then um, uh, later in the day, I got another text from Janet Delifo in Port Melbourne saying, oh, look, all these thin rib cockles have cast up on the beach. You know, oh, so I was just wow. like, Because hmm. that's uh, quite, quite a difference in location, isn't it? I'm, I'm guessing maybe when you first got your... Your um, call from Judy being down Ride to Garuk, maybe it was just a localised thing, but Port Melbourne's a long way away and obviously a lot closer up to Melbourne too. Yeah, well, I guess the, the connection though with the Northern Pacific Sea Stars is that uh, they do come to nearshore areas to spawn and St Kilda's been one of their favourite spots right. for many, many years. You know, so we'd expect them to be in the neighbourhood uh, at this time of year and we do know that there have been quite a lot of them down on the peninsula too uh, in recent times, so they perhaps are widespread. Mm. So do we have an A plus B situation here, Neil? <laughs> you know, A plus B equals C. So we've got we've got uh, all of these shells which have suddenly washed up. We've got thousands of them. Mm. How many did we – did you go out and have a look? Uh, no, I wasn't in a – uh, I, I did actually visit Port Melbourne on the day and I saw a few down there, but uh, – that was before um, I got the text from Janet, though. But uh, uh, you recall uh, the um, lockdown provisions were oh, yeah. under, <laughs> in play at the time, so I couldn't go any more than 25 k's from uh, from where I am anyway. Yeah, of course. Uh, but um, the, the question is that, to my mind, uh, if we know that the um, uh, Northern Pacific sea stars are going to be coming near shore to... Um, to spawn in winter, then we can expect that they'll be dropping in at the, uh, the nice uh, sandbars to where they can pick up a few uh, thin rib cockles along the way, you know. Mm. So I think it sets the scene for us to do some forward planning if we can map the sort of habitat of those favoured prey species. Uh, then we could perhaps predict where the northern Pacific sea stars are going to be and uh, maybe do some proactive 
action in future to uh, get rid of. Well, that was going to be my question for you, Neil. When they're not washing up on the beach, where do you find them? Are they do they sitting on the surface? Are they amongst seagrass? Are they buried in the sand? Are they, they are in buried de- in the sand, and that's one of the interesting things is why they're vulnerable to the Northern Pacific sea stars is they actually have a, a relatively short siphon. As you know, mollusks, uh, most of them have siphons, and uh, the thin-ribbed cockle siphons are... Uh, fairly short and so they uh, are actually sitting in the sand but quite close to the surface which makes them easier to access by the sea stars. And are they in shallow water or are they sort of found all throughout the bays at different depths? Um... Well that's where uh, there's a bit of uh, different uh, stories really because I looked at around about uh, five different reference books just to get an indication of that and uh, their, their habitats are described differently in each. <laughs> Although, uh, 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 some of them are saying oh, sand and mud from two metres to 30 metres, and some are saying muddy sand. Uh, another one said maybe dredged in sand and muds, uh, a sheltered sand and mud naught to 30 metres. Another one said literal sand between high and low tide and shallow t- subtitle. So uh, this is where I think we need to do a little bit of uh, uh, our own investigations to sort of get a, a better handle on it. Neil, with Judy and Janet's observations, were the shells that were washed up just single shells or were they kind of still attached? Well, uh, all of the ones that, uh, well, practically all that uh, Judy sent me some photos, they were still attached, so they're quite recently dead. It's an interesting one because, I mean, the question that springs to my mind is did they die because of the storms um, or did they die because they were eaten by sea stars and then washed up? Well, um, they didn't, it didn't appear to have any, any flesh left in them, okay. so it, it suggests perhaps they've been eaten by sea stars and have just been sitting on the shells, have been sitting on the bottom offshore uh, and then just got cast up by the ferocity of that particular storm. So. Yeah. Uh, there's a few angles to explore there, I suppose. It's interesting, but, uh, isn't it? And the locations definitely match too. With, yeah. Yeah, with all those sightings down on the Mornington Peninsula, okay? Oh, yeah, no, I was just thinking, I know there's a student at Deakin University who'd been doing some stuff looking at the diet of the sea stars. Um, so it might actually be worth getting Morgan on and having a chat with him about what he's found. Yeah. Because obviously this is related to, potentially related to this, so it'd be interesting to know what sort of prey they are generally feeding on. And I guess that's one way of answering, isn't it? Find a few of them and you know, have a look at what's in their guts. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a study done, Cade, uh, by uh, it was a PhD student at the time, I think, uh, Donald Jeff Ross uh, with the University of Tasmania uh, on uh, sea star population down in the Derwent. And they f- his study found uh, in between 1997 and 98 that uh, certainly the um, thin rib cockles were one of the favoured prey, probably the most favoured prey. They Once they... Um, uh, took that population down, though they moved on to other species. But it's possible, though, that the fact that uh, they were so accessible and close to the surface, which is why they were the favourite prey, but uh, definitely they, they, they're in the gun as far as Northern Pacific sea stars go. Mm-hmm. What's coming up for you, Neil? I'm guessing the last few weeks since you were on last have been a bit quiet because, as you rightly pointed out, we've been in lockdown. Um, what, what's coming up in the next few weeks? Well, what, I, what I've been doing uh, last year around this time, Ron, uh, um, was uh, doing some studies, shoreline shell surveys in the St Kilda area to actually get a handle on 
whether there were any freshly killed species being cast up on the beach, and particularly in St Kilda Harbour. So I'm going to be doing a, a number of those surveys over the next week or so uh, to be able to compare the sizes of the freshly killed species and, and also the species that are actually being uh, cast up between 2020 and 21. So it'll be interesting to see. Excellent. So next time we have you on, we'll be looking forward to hearing how, how that uh, little bit of surveying goes. And any community-based activities or is it a little bit too fresh post-lockdown for citizen science work to be going on? It's, yeah, it's just on the cusp, really. Yeah. <laughs> the other, I, mean, I, I would welcome if anyone is interested you know, in coming along, they can uh, perhaps email me at uh, baykeeper at ecocentre.com uh, and we can uh, talk about that. Uh, I guess uh, the other wild card at this time is the weather, you know, so uh, I'm keen to actually do the surveys at low tide and so uh, the next few days it's going to be okay, not rain-wise, but later in the week um, it's problematic, you know, so uh, I might just need to go when it, there's a window of opportunity rather than being a set time to actually accommodate people from the community. Yeah, good one. Thanks, Neil. Always a pleasure and um, very, very interesting stuff going on and looking forward to catching up with you in the next few weeks for an update. Yeah, good on you. Have a good day. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, you too. See you. Bye for now. Neil Blake there, our baykeeper. He is our baykeeper, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. What would we do with that, Neil? Well... <laughs> We'd be lost. Speechless. Yeah. yeah. I don't have an answer. <laughs> and yeah, really interesting stuff going on. And, you know, are these just coincidental and, or is there some more meaning to these observations? So, well, and it's always good to ask questions, isn't it? It's the fun part yeah. and trying to find the answers to them. Yeah. But let's get this student in, I reckon. Yeah. I've, if hopefully Morgan's listening, it's but I'll chase him up and get him in. We're, we're on to you, Morgan. Estamos <laughs> <laughs> escuchando Radio Marinara en tres triple R. En tres triple R. Indeed, that is where you are, where the time is 9.28. And it's with great pleasure we now cross to, um, I'm going to take a stab here, uh, dra- uh, Dramana. Hi, Jackie uh, I'm not in, no, hi, hi, Brian. I'm not in Dramana today, but I'm, I'm across what's happening in Dramana. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Hey, great to catch up with you. It's been a few weeks. Um, hey, what is happening in Dramana? Well, not a lot, actually. There's some, there's some NPS scattered along the shore, and I've just been listening to you guys talk about that. Um, very interesting stuff. Um, it, there's been, you know, it's been scattered. It's been scattered along the shore for quite a while now, so... Apart from that, very sunny skies and very light winds, though. It's a beautiful day. Good diving weather for those who are Oh, really inclined. good diving weather. I was just going to say that, like, the east-south-easterly winds, you can pretty much go anywhere today. I think Flinders is flooding from lunchtime, so take your pick. Um, let's get straight to the spider crabs because, yep. you know, we've it's been it's been this giant drum roll, but, um, no, no. but, but the band's all sitting there with their instruments ready to play and the drum roll's <laughs> happened and no one knows what to do. What's happening with spider crabs? Have we had any sightings at all? But we yeah, had a few I'm random gonna, ones. I was just listening to you. I was talking that they kept secret. Um, as you said, you know, if they were here... It would be all over the, the Facebook sites. Um, look, um, they are 
I would consider them late now. You know, we wait for the water temperature to drop below 14 and the full moon. But we did have an early full moon. So for me, if they're not in by next week, which is the 25th is the next full moon, then we're going to start to be thinking what has happened here. But look, I've had ports, very, very few reports. I've heard that they're somewhere off Geelong. They're in deeper water. There has been a couple of individual malted shells that have been seen just off ripe here. So... They're just, they're just not here. They're just not in the shallows. They are in the deeper water. They're just not coming into the shallows at, as yet. Have they ever been? I'm sorry, Jackie. It's Kate here. Have they ever been a no? <laughs> have they ever been a no show? Like, do we have records of people that are aware of like years when they just don't see them? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And if they do not come in, that's something we're really going to be looking at. Like, at I, from my memory, everyone I've spoken to, I know people who've been. Diving on the peninsula for 30 years, um, myself, probably 15 to 20 years, I cannot recall an occasion where they did not come into the shallows. I, 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 it's just not something I've ever heard. Um, you know, they're, they're out in the deeper water, but I've never heard. You know, they come in for protection, they come in to molt. We cannot say, because there's been no study on this species, we cannot say how long it's taken them to adapt after what's happened in the last couple of years. No one can say that that's not a factor. We don't know yet. We really don't know. So next week will be very telling. Yeah, as Bron said, the drums are rolling on this one. Let's see where oh, they go. We've got everything ready. We've got our data survey ready. We were, we, we were going to do a launch um, with the COVID. You know, with the, this last COVID restrictions that delayed our launch, um, we're all talking about when shall we launch. We're like, well, it would be great to launch when the crabs are here. Um, you know, if they were in shallow, we would know about it. There's just too many people looking for them. We're getting, you know, queries every day that people are out snorkeling. People are travelling down without the restrictions now to see them. They're like, where are they? Mm. So it is very strange. You've even had a colouring competition. I mean, the kids. There's somebody thinking yeah. of the kids. <laughs> oh, that's okay, though. That's been wonderful, you know. That's been one of the fantastic things about this campaign. It's such a, you know, we've all done campaigns. We've all been on campaigns. It's been really enjoyable, actually. Um, where and they're actually, um, a couple of our members are actually judging them today. So this is hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of colouring competitions. To um, And we're going to be announcing the winners soon. It's been really waiting on the COVID restrictions to lift to see whether we can have an event or... So there's a few factors there, but the colouring competition and winners will be announced at some stage soon. <laughs> that's great. Let's catch up with you next weekend, Jackie, if that's okay. Um, oh, absolutely. I hope I've got some good news for you. Look, either way, it's, it's a really interesting year either way. So next full moon is on the 25th, I think, of June. So we'll be having a very interesting conversation next weekend. Yeah, so that'll be Friday. And what is the water temperature at the moment? Um, I haven't been in for a little while, but it's, it should be hovering around 11 or 12, depending on the tide oh, okay. at this time of year. Yep. So it's definitely cold enough, um, depending on location, tide, depth, but about around sort of 11 to about 13, sometimes 14 if it's really warm, but that's quite warm for this time of year. So it's definitely cold enough for them to come in. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll catch up with you next Sunday. Looking forward to it already. No worries, guys. Thank you. I'll speak to you next weekend. Thanks, See you, Jackie. Jackie. Have a good week. Bye. See ya. Jackie Younger there from the Save Our Spider Crabs campaign. A sea star, as you said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she is our star. <laughs> well, look, as listeners to this show know, we are about all things wet and salty. And with the exception of the Dead Sea, there are not many things saltier than a commercial diver. <laughs> and when it comes to commercial divers, there are a few that have spent as much time underwater 
along the Victorian coast than our next guest, Jono Rudge. Jono, or Mr Rudge, as no one I have ever known calls him, is the Director of Kina Diving and joins us on the line today. Welcome to Triple R, Jono. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Good to have you on board, mate. Now, how far from the brine are you today? I'm actually um, sitting down uh, at North Shore in Geelong. I, um, yeah, so not far. It's a bit, <laughs> bit chilly out there today. It's a nice day. That, that wasn't the answer I was expecting. I was expecting Malacuta or Marlow or somewhere like that. But no, you're, you're back in your sort of your home stomping ground. Yeah, yeah I'm back here uh, just preparing myself for the next um, the next onslaught of work. So I'll head off today uh, back into the commercial diving life and. Uh, I'll be down at Lakes Entrance in Marlow, uh, hopefully uh, from tomorrow onwards, getting on with um, uh, some sea urchin culling and some other, some other work for the local port authority. Well, that leads in perfectly to what my next question was going to be, because when people sort of think commercial divers, it often conjures up images of oil rigs and hard helmets, the deep sea, catheters. Uh, but <laughs> as I know, it is quite sort of varied. Uh, what is, I guess, like a year in the life of Jono? What sort of jobs do you do what, as a commercial diver? Um, so my, my stuff, um, uh, as, as I come from a, a fisheries, I guess, abalone background, we, we, um, we do anything from, um, I still do some abalone wild catch. Uh, I, do, I do a lot of scientific diving type work. And uh, we go right through to heavy construction and um, contaminated water diving, which is what everyone asks me, is uh, basically poo diving. <laughs> so we cover all bases. All right, so I can't leave that one untouched because I know listeners will want to know a bit more about poo diving. Uh, I guess, what does that involve? And would you rather be the person in the poo or the person on the shore dealing with the um, uh, lines connected to the person in the poo? Uh, to be honest with you, Kate, the, the best job is, is the diver. The diver gets looked after like royalty, and he doesn't come into contact with, with it in an ideal world. Um, the, the, the guys that have to look after him and make sure that, um, the water is okay, totally sealed. So, so it, it's everybody else that gets balanced, and hopefully, not it and um, the right PPE on that shouldn't happen to anybody on site. But um, it, it, it's the guys running the running the job on the surface, looking after the guy in the water. That uh, generally, uh, me gets to get to smell it more than more than the guy in the water. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, there's always glorious parts to, or glamorous parts to every job, and that sort of seems to be one of them. So we'll move away from the diving in sewage ponds. And basically, one of the reasons I got you on today is, you know, in the interest of transparency, I also do a bit of moonlighting as a commercial diver, and I recently spent some time with Jono down at Beware Reef doing some urchin culling. And so before we get into the actual urchin culling, can you just tell us a little bit about Beware Reef, where it is, and... What what's so special, I guess, about that place? Well, well the Weir Reef, um, it, it, it's off, just off um, just off Cape Conran, uh, low near with no where the Snow River meets the sea. Um, it's probably two two kilometres offshore, and about four or five k's from the boat ramp. But it's it's an amazing. Um, Standard outcrop sort of pops up from probably 20, 25 metres of water up, up right up to a nice little flat rock platform that um, 
seals are able to sit. Got a few shipwrecks on it as well, and it has been a marine national park for some time. And it, it's just an amazing uh, for sport divers or, or people that like looking at shipwrecks, or, or um, it's it's one of the best I've seen, and I've heard and sport dives all over the place, and this is an amazing, amazing dive. Hi, Jono, it's Bron. I wanted to ask you about, um, and we're talking about Beware Reef, and, and there was a very good reason for why it was selected to be part of the group that initially went through, you know, as that package of marine sanctuaries and marine national parks, because they were chosen as a package to represent um, sort of a full suite of underwater ecosystems. Uh, and Beware Reef was chosen for, you know, very good reason, wasn't it? And diversity was one of them. It, yeah, exactly. It is. It, it's, it's an, an amazing. You know, the habitat there is, a, is amazing, and it um, and and to be able to go and uh, find uh, and see the life that you see there, particularly on a good day when the water's clear, um, it, it, it's, it's honestly like being in a in an aquarium. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And uh, yeah, I can I fully get why that one that one was chosen. Um, it, it was a very good choice. And I guess, um, sorry, John. On on that topic about the diversity, um, one of the threats, I guess, to the diversity has been the overabundance of sea urchins. And when I say sea urchins, I'm not talking about the ones we have here in Port Phillip Bay, which are a smaller sort of. I, I know the scientific name. I don't know the common name. It's Heliosidaris here. They're about the size of a tennis ball. The ones in the bay, whereas the ones over on that side uh, travel down the East Australian coast, and they're probably more the size of. Oh, grapefruit. A head, a head, <laughs> or a grapefruit. Yeah, and so they're overabundant there. And what they do is they're basically creating these barren areas. Now, it's an area you've been diving for a long time, Jono. So you've probably seen some changes. Now, what parks are doing is they're actually getting you out there to cull. Now, how big is Beware Reef? I guess the reef area for Beware Reef. And the next question is, how many urchins do you think you've culled? Well, I think it's. A- the, the area that we've been looking at, um, and it's really hard to gauge uh, underwater because because your business is limited. You don't really have an aerial view of it when you get it, when you there. But I reckon we've been working on about four four hectares, I suppose, of, of, of habitat. Um, and over the three three years, I think we've been doing this. I I haven't done the final count, but for two days left to complete. The, the current project, but I think we'll be up around that uh, 90, 90 to 100,000 sea urchins. Um, and to give you an idea, uh, <coughs> if we're in a barren which hasn't been treated, we'll, we'll, we'll get around 8,000. Between four divers, we'll get around 8,000 um, in, in a day. And then and as we go back over the areas that we've treated, those numbers will drop off and drop off and see these sort of get down to, you know, uh, high scores of, of 50 or 100. Yeah, I actually uh, did the maths on, because Jono is the um, champion colour. Um, no one gets to the boat having culled more urchins than Jono, um, which is about 2,000 in a two-hour dive, which equates to 16 a minute, which is basically one every four seconds. 
So when you think of overabundance and dealing with a pest species, like there's a lot of them down there. And now you mentioned earlier you've been doing this for three years. So you're obviously visiting some of these sites where the things urchins have been culled quite a few years ago. Are you noticing a difference in the habitat as a result of removing these urchins, which basically graze everything? Yeah, well, okay. What a, particularly the, 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 the initial um, sites that we culled, which were in... In, in hard against the uh, the actual um, rock where the, the sea urchins were making their way up vertical, I guess, vertical walls between sort of five and, say, 12 metres. And and what it, what it was doing was, was pushing all of the, the other animals being um, abalone is probably the one that really noticed. But, so the abalone were being forced up into the, the ridges and the shallow ground and they're sitting on top of um, high spots. And... Pretty well, um, 12 months after we've, we've treated those areas, which we, we managed to remove about 98% of the sea urchins from half a hectare, which was our first project and trial plot. Um, the, the abalone, I've noticed that the mature abalone, um, as the turfing algae come back in the water, the mature abalone are making their way back down into the sort of 12 metre, um, I guess, flat bolt and a flat and bouldery country, and they're actually distributing... I, I, I wouldn't say there was any more abalone at this stage, but they're certainly spreading out as, as their turfing algae and their, and their food source um, uh, comes back into the deeper water where the sea urchins historically had eaten nothing. And, and I'm noticing the, the overstory that the Eclonia and the Philosopher and uh, Davilia, you know, which are the three common sort of kelp species or seaweed species are starting to come back and they're, they're one of the things that would eat down all the time. So we're, getting, we're getting some amazing results. In fact, one of the sites, are, it was really hard to recognise it. Uh, that, that, and, and then you sort of look and you go, oh, yeah, that, I remember that. I remember that now. That, that that's now, you know, healthy overstory, which is really good. And, and turkey algae underneath and your, your, and your sponges and so forth. Yeah, well, trust an abalone diver to notice all the abalone everywhere. <laughs> now, we're, we're, we've got to wrap this up, Jono, but I just wanted to have one little quick question to finish on. How do you actually go about the culling? Like, what is the physical process of doing it? I'm sure people are interested to know what, how that works. So um, what we do is we, um, we, we get uh, uh, buddy pairs, which any sport diver would be familiar with that, but we do dive it on SSBA, and the reason why I like the divers is that it, we, we sort of tether them together about 10 metres apart. It, it enables a methodical approach to the person swimming off over that way and one over that way. You, you, you're able to work through a, a zone or, a, or an area together, and, and we use almost like a... It's almost like a, a shovel, but it's sharpened um, or fabricated to like an arrowhead, which we steer into the into the top of the sea urchin and give it a little twist, which which opens it up and um, it, it puts it uh, puts it to, to, to sleep or to, to uh, it, it treats it like it, it's no longer uh, alive. And the fish have an absolute field day with this stuff, so they follow you along eating all the bits of uh, yellow row that come out of the urchins once they're smashed. And then that, they've got they've got an amazing ability to hang on with their tube feet for several days afterwards so the idea is we treat an area then we leave it for probably four or five days or a weather event and 
and then we come back and you can see that they've all fallen off the rocks and they're two feet of flex. That's... Uh, and then, and that's what we'll be doing uh, next week. Fantastic. Now, I've still got about half a sheet of paper uh, questions to go through with you, Jono, which we don't have time for, so we're going to have to get you back out on air. Thanks for joining us from North Geelong, and we'll chat to you soon, Jono. Yes, it's on your case. All right, see, see you. Cheers, bye. bye. <laughs> that was Jono Rudge from Kinner Diving talking about some of his commercial diving. Yeah. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. Oh, yeah, you do, and so do we. And it's eight minutes to ten. Time to welcome back. It's been quite a while. Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Marinara team. It has been far too long. Yeah. Let's not leave it so long between drinks next time, hey? Let's do that. All right. <laughs> Let's get straight into it. Um, where will we start with? Let's start with whale migrations um, because we're kind of heading into that season. W- what's happening with the whales? We've seen some, we mentioned at the start of the program, some spectacular photos of some whale yeah. sightings off Warrnambool. Yes, um, you called at the right time, uh, Bron. It's uh, it, we've just hit into our real first hard stream of whales coming through the Victorian coastline right now. Um, our humpback whale numbers uh, through the through our survey area so far have just skyrocketed in the last week and a half. And the whales you're referring to, which are the southern right whales, have just begun to start to settle along the coast. There's still quite a few moving around. But the one at Warrnambool is a well-known animal known as Big Combing, and she is a female which, of course, everyone's hoping will carve this year at Logan's Beach, Warrnambool. So uh, things are looking up right now. I, I was just going to ask, Dave, are you ever the first person to spot a whale in Victoria or is it other people sending you photos? Uh, look, um, I think we'll, we'll probably choose to agree on this one, Kate, that uh, once you get to a certain stage in your career, you end up with more time behind the computer screen than out in the field. Uh, now, this is uh, a good thing and a bad thing. Um, it means that the data that's coming in is being processed fairly uh, fairly quickly. But the bad thing is I really enjoy going out to cliff tops and in boats to look for whales. And I must say, apart from the aerial surveys we've been part of over uh, the last uh, 18 months or so, I haven't been to look for a whale other than from the sky. So this these whale sightings in Warrnambool, these these so this is a far, far west of the state, and then typically we've got sightings that tend to happen along the east coast as well. What's happening right now, Dave? Where where are the whales coming from? Um, well, this is a really good question which we're still yet to answer. The the ultimate question for southern right whales is where are they coming from, and no one knows the answer to that question. Um, it's a really difficult one to answer without satellite tagging, and of course with such a sensitive low-numbered uh, subpopulation of southern right whales, risk versus reward in this case is probably best heard on the side of caution. So that's something that probably won't happen. So what we're looking at there is working in collaboration with the people who actually do southern right whale by Delft um, and our colleague down the west, Mandy Watson and Casey Stimation, who are doing mark recapture, so trying to get photos at all different locations through their uh, online system called Whaleface, which is a little bit like uh, uh, facial recognition type stuff, except it's done behind a computer screen with expert eyes. I, no, I was just laughing at the name Whaleface. Um, now, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things, I guess I can go behind the curtain, is I had a chat to Dave the other day, and one of the things that really struck me was you were talking about the how important it is that for people sending images in, in, images in 
to the information and the knowledge and what we're learning about whales. And you even actually put like a, I guess, a back of the envelope dollar figure on what it would cost someone like yourself if you got paid to do this to actually go and collect that information. Now, it's up to you whether you're willing to share that. But I was astounded by how much information comes from citizen scientists and how like, they're crucial. Otherwise, there's so much we wouldn't know if it wasn't for them. I think you're right there, Kay. Look, the, the system that we have here is basically built upon citizen science um, almost entirely. Sure, we've got a whale watch vessel that does circumnavigate to Phillip Island and grabs some fantastic information, but it's the citizens along the coast donating photos, their IP, essentially, and their accounts of whales, which really makes, a, makes up the difference. And I don't mind sharing the, the, the value of that because I don't think you can put a true value on it. But if, if we were to go out and spend time looking for whales, spending the day, travelling, taking photos and processing all that information, I think it's a, the figure, at least for killer whales, which is a very hard species to study in Australia, particularly the east, I think the figure is somewhere in the order of about $3,000. Wow. Um, that just, just for one sighting information um, gathering session, if you like, and then the processing. So that, that's a lot of money that, that um, you know, would otherwise have to be sourced through funding and probably wouldn't be sourced if we're, if we're to be totally honest. So it is a community-based outreach engagement and feeding back to citizen scientists to build that interest and build that passion around the things that we are truly um, concerned around, which is, the, the, I guess, the conservation and well-being of um, cetaceans around Victoria. Dave, we've got about a minute and a half left and I'm thinking, because um, we're going to talk about a couple of papers that you've co-authored. One was on bubble net feeding, which has had a little bit of mainstream interest and also um, some observations of Antarctic killer whales in Australia. Let's just very, very briefly touch on the um, observations of Antarctic killer whales in Australia so we can go full loop on Antarctica today and um, we'll get you back on in a couple of weeks to talk about the other paper as well. well tell us about Antarctic killer whales in Australia. What's that all about? Yeah, Bron, Bron, well, we touched on this a little while ago with some sightings in Tasmania, um, and those sightings were of type C killer whales, an ecotype of the Southern Hemisphere killer whale groups, if you like. Um, and before 2008, um, there were no records of an Antarctic uh, ecotypes visiting our coastal waters. So since 2008, we've been collecting observations over the course of time and very slowly putting this note out. It is really a note um, on this topic because we think it's important that we understand that Antarctic animals are visiting our coastlines and not only visiting for a day here and there, but staying for a few days, like 10, 12, 15, I think it was 19 days in the end for some type B killer whales. So we pulled all that information together, again, citizen science-based, put it into a pot, mixed it all around, tried to make some sense of it, put some photos in and published that in um, Aquatic Mammals, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the journals that's available for, for that sort of reporting. So we're very proud of that piece of work, albeit a small piece of work, but very important in the understanding of killer whales in Australian coastal waters. Yeah, definitely, and it all comes back to citizen science. We'll put a link to on our, on our Facebook page again, Dave, about uh, to, to Killer Whales Australia so that people can start gearing up for the next... Uh, whale sighting season which is kicking off uh well now let's call it now very exciting stuff thanks dave we'll catch right up now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um I'll, I'll give you a call during the week and we'll uh, organize a time in a couple of weeks to get you back on good on your team great to talk to you as always nice to reconnect cheers dave thanks dave
See ya. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Dave Donnelly, Kilowells Australia and Dolphin Research Institute. Also thanks to John O'Rudge talking about commercial diving and urchin culling. And at the top of the program, Neil Blake. We've got all sorts of stuff to put on our Facebook page, so um, check that out uh, later on this afternoon. And thank you, Kate. Thank you, Bron. Thanks, Narrative, very much for panelling for us today. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. I can see panel beta, Dr Nick... Prudence, dear, they're all uh, sitting in the studio next hours, ready to take you through to 11 o'clock when Dr. Shane will take over for Einstein and GoGo. Just stay to Triple R. Stay tuned to Triple R for the rest of today. And we'll catch you next week. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.